Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm writer, DC Comics editor, and side order of Meringue and Razor Blades, Alisa Quitney. And I'm story expert and woman who claims she taught her duck to tap dance, Lonnie Diane Rich. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about 24 Hours and Sound and Fury, issues six and seven from Sandman, volume one, Preludes and Nocturnes. Both titles were written by Neil Gaiman and illustrated by Mike Dringenberg and Malcolm Jones III, Covers by Dave McKean. Listen, you can hear the screaming. Time to wake up. All right, Elisa, here we are talking about the... um, Okay, when we first talked about doing Sandman, I went ahead and I read Preludes and Nocturnes, and I read all of that, and it was at this point when I read 24 Hours that I was like, oh my God, we're serious. This is happening. And um, and I was also really terrified of having to read it again in order to do this episode. Um, so it was it, this is the issue in this entire um, volume that has stood out to me that I remembered with incredible clarity that had such an incredible impact on me. Um, now, you, you know, have known Sandman. You're much more familiar with it. You knew all of this coming in. Um, and I just kind of want to know like these two 24 hours in sound and fury how do you feel about these two issues i think that they're really powerful issues and they it's interesting because for me they hit the very outer reaches of my taste for horror for for real Mm -hmm. horror pure horror i've ever since i was a kid i've definitely loved horror but often horror laced with comedy dark comedy slash horror that that Mm -hmm. hybrid and there are times though that i have really enjoyed and and even hungered for horror that it is answered Mm -hmm. a need in me even though i'm i'm basically an optimistic reader of of you know i i like it when things Mm -hmm. end hopefully and i i'm not sure I've been trying to investigate in myself what it is about these issues that keep it still within the range of horror that that doesn't send me down to a place too dark for me to have pleasure. I I think in part because there is still a little bit of a fairy tale aspect to all of this. There is a little bit of uh, an element of satire as well. So even though it's visceral and you're feeling it strongly, there 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 are still little safe places for me to breathe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is, I think that because it's paired right now with Sound and Fury, we have these two that we're reading together and Sound and Fury ends on such a, like a, a note of compassion you know, and empathy, which I really, really love. That kind of moderates it for me with them together. But 24 hours in and of itself is truly horrifying. And when you say visceral, I mean, the thing is, we use the word visceral quite a bit in discussing these comics, and there's good reason for it. It is extremely visceral. Um, but it's it's not something that I ordinarily enjoy. Um, 24 hours as its own independent short story is something I would not return to. But as part of this bigger, you know, arc that we see going on with Sandman and ending in Sound and Fury, which has this 
kindness, uh, this gentleness from Dream. I, I find it so incredibly interesting, especially because like way back when he first had that bit of, of kindness and empathy for Rachel and the issue with John Constantine. And you said, well, maybe it has to do with him knowing that he has that power. He is really digging into that power on this one. Um, I find these to be so incredibly powerful as issues in this story. And really interesting. And I don't know if I'm ever going to go back and read 24 Hours again, because right now, after having gone through it in detail, you know, in order for us to do this episode, I'm feeling a little queasy. It's a bit much, you know, at the same time, really well done. Excellent storytelling, you know, and you know how much I'm a storytelling nerd. I love that. It's it's excellent storytelling, and it has such a strong theme of storytelling contained within it. Yeah. Oh, God, it's so good. Twenty four hours. First, the cover ghostly ectoplasmic blue green hands press against a transparent surface glass water, a membrane. The faces that line the shelves surrounding the hands include a black and white photo of a furious face, an antique doll with a clock over its nose, a burlap strip with holes for eyes and mouth, and a monkey mask that trails veins or electrodes that cascade down into the next shelf. Then we open issue six at the 24-hour diner where we ended last issue. Our story begins with a time clock, Hour One, and an introduction to middle-aged waitress and secret author Betty Monroe. The themes of secrets and stories run through this issue of The Sandman, where Dr. D sends his Ruby's power into the deepest and darkest dreams of the customers trapped in D's web. Hungry for something he cannot name, Dee begins by watching the diner's other customers, black leather jacketed Judy, who had a fight with her girlfriend Donna and hit her. Kate and Gary Fletcher, the fanatic boss's daughter and Gary, her alpha bastard husband. Marsh, the post-postal mailman. And last but not least, Mark, the red-haired guy with the job interview at the chemical plant. As the diner's customers reveal their dreams, their nightmares, and their darkest secrets, we see on the diner's TV that Dee's warped dreamstone is infecting dreamers everywhere. By the time Dream himself turns up in the last panel, the only person left to save in that diner is us. In Sound and Fury, we open with the effects of Dee's mad dream world rampage as we are told to listen to the screaming of people around the world as they attack each other. Listen to a world in pain. Dee welcomes Dream into the diner where he is using the ruby to torment the world. Dream is horrified at the way Dee has corrupted the Dreamstone. Dream sits with him and explains the Dreamstone is made of the fabric of Dream's being. It was made to help him rule the dream world. It wasn't made for the way Dee is using it. Dream commands Dee to repair the stone and return it to him so that he can repair the damage Dee has done. Dee has another idea. How's about he uses the ruby to kill Dream instead? Dream gears up for battle, pulling Dee into the dream world to fight it out. Dee follows him and is suddenly in the dream form of Caesar. Dream runs off and Dee chases him as the dream world and the storytellers cower in fear. Finally, Dream shows himself and tells Dee to stop. 
Infuriated, Dee crushes the ruby in his hands, destroying it. For a moment, Dee declares himself the ruler of the dream world, even if it is a little anticlimactic, and then he realizes he's standing in Dream's open hand. Dream thanks him for destroying the ruby, which released his power back to him, giving him full control of Dreamland. Now he must decide what Dee's punishment should be, and decides to take Dee home, back to Arkham Asylum, where he belongs. Dream declares that tonight all humanity will settle down and go quiet as the world dreams in peace. All right. Oh, my goodness. So really, really powerful issues. Great storytelling happening. Um, where do you want to start? What do you want to talk about first? Well, the first thing I wanted to mention is there's this interesting combination of, of the themes that are being looked at here and the art styles being used to explore it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think of this issue as having a lot to do with nihilism and a sort of a, a little bit of a, a punk or post-punk attitude. Yeah, there's... Mm -hmm. um, I think a way in which this is this is 80s horror. It's it's mm -hmm. the horror of people who are concealing dark secrets but are lusting for material success or mm -hmm. stability. Um, and what I noticed was that uh, I, I'd been listening to another podcast that was talking about nihilism and Dada, which was the art movement that came after right. World War One, mm -hmm. and. As I say, this is not stuff that I just walk around thinking about all the time, <laughs> but, but as I looked into it, you know, you listen to a podcast, you look up some things. I realized mm -hmm. that collage and assemblage, which is using found objects uh, to yeah. create three-dimensional elements in, in art, um, all of that was very much a part of that new postmodern uh, mm -hmm. 1920s post-World War I movement. And mm -hmm. I, I see a lot of that in this. So we've got a lot of use of backgrounds that look collage or we see elements of, of uh, I think there's some, you know, dollar bills in the background. And, and uh, there's a, a shot where uh, what the, the, that yuppie, skinny, you know, desperately mm -hmm. dieting woman has yeah. the decapitated head of her husband there. And, and behind mm -hmm. her is sort of a, a screened image of Marilyn Monroe. And, yeah. and so we've got something more punk and more surreal about mm -hmm. the way backgrounds are used, especially in both of them, but especially in 24 hours. Mm -hmm. I love that. Well, and first of all, anytime you want to bring in nihilism or Dadaism or any of that into these discussions, I am all for it. I love being able to look at it from a different perspective, you know, and again, because I'm not like, I don't think visually, I think in terms of narrative and what's happening with the with the characters that I will miss this stuff if you don't point it out. So I really do appreciate that you're you're taking that deep look into all of the artwork because the artwork is really important. And it gives you this complete sense of like what this is. One of the things I found really interesting is the way in 24 hours when we shifted from you know, the ways that he was controlling them, the ways that everybody was presented, you know, the kind of like dream 
thing, like where Kate was holding her husband's head in her hand, you know, as, as one of the examples that um, based on kind of like the ways in which um, John D was manipulating their minds, you would see that kind of reflected in everything in the environment, you know, from things that were real to things that weren't real, you know? Um, and, oh God, it's so horrifying, but really, really good. I mean, like I can imagine how for an artist to have to work something like this like you really for me it was hard enough to just like read it and absorb it and take it all in to be an artist working on that and thinking of all the detail and how you've got to draw these people who are in essence being forced to harm themselves you know which is so much worse than him just coming in and doing something horrible to them you know, to harm themselves, to harm each other. He's making them murder each other. It's just, God, it's so incredibly creepy. But I love all that stuff that you brought in. Um, so one of the things that um, that I was really thinking about, which you kind of mentioned, is the ways in which everybody has these dark secrets, right? And so we open up with Betty, you know, who is imagining herself, you know, she's really a writer, you know, she's pretends to be a waitress during the day, but deep down inside, she's a writer and they don't know this is her secret. Um, but her secret is also that she was sleeping with this guy, you know, whose wife was, you know, was Marsh. drowning herself in alcohol, Marsh and Marsha. Yeah. Um, so Betty's got some darkness in her history as well. Um, but when you go through all of the darkness, all of the things that are happening behind the scenes, I think the first one that we see is Judy, right? Who is, is pining for Donna, who has not shown up for their date. And then we discover that they had a fight and Judy hit her, you know, like that Judy is an abuser is kind of a horrifying thing because that's the perspective that we're in. We're in the perspective of not the victim, but the abuser, but the perpetrator. And then she ends up becoming a victim. Um, you know, we have this darkness with, uh, with Gary and Kate, right? Betty sees them as so madly in love. There are a couple of lovebirds, one without the other would absolutely wither away and die. You know, when in reality he's cheating on her, she's horrified. Like she's pissed off about everything, you know, and she would rather that he was dead anyway, because she's kind of into that. Um, you know, <laughs> There is so much going on and it's so complex. Um, and then we get to these things where he makes them into the Furies, the Graces, the the Mother Maiden Crone, you know. Um, he makes them give his future and he, they give his future, but it's all true. Everything they say is true, but he waits until they just tell the part that he likes, you know? Um, yeah, it's just so much good stuff. The, the really interesting thing there is that the part that he likes that reassures him is also true, but mm -hmm. of course not where we're going to end up. And not the end of the story. And mm -hmm. it's, it's the kind of trickery that we will see from the fates, from the three witches. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that when he invokes that power through maiden, mother, and crone, mm -hmm. they become more than just the individuals. They seem to yes. tap into some great mother load, as it were. 
Yeah, right. That 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 grander understanding of the universe, you know, but also under his control, they are doing that because he has controlled them into it, you know, um, which is is so interesting to see all of that play out. Um, and, uh, and so we've got the three of them, we've got the different phases that they do. And then there's this one moment where he gives them their minds back after they've done enough damage but not before they do like the worst of it, you know, um, which seems just even another exercise in cruelty. Like 24 hours is a constant exercise in just cruelty, you know, for fun. It, it is. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, um, it's interesting. We do get motivation. He does mm-hmm. not understand his own motivation, but there is a part where, you know, we are told, you know, he is hungry for something, but he doesn't know what it is. He, he feels a little glimmer of pleasure when, when people do something sexual, when they do Mm -hmm. something cruel, but there is some way in which all of this emotion is muffled to him. Mm -hmm. And I found that interesting because at the end of the Mm -hmm. comic of, of 24 hours, um, spoiler, you know, yeah. everyone is dead and except for D. And that means, you know, we, we started with Betty as sort of our, our entryway. She was, yeah, she was mm-hmm. our point of view character for a brief moment in time. And we were with her as we observed these other characters, mm-hmm. but we transfer allegiance in the end to the only person left to us. And we are yeah. with the monster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're left alone in that diner with the monster. Um, and it's it's interesting because Betty's desire to control is not dissimilar to Dee's desire to control. I mean, they are a reflection of each other. Oh, oh, my God, so much so. And my dog, got, I bounced up and down. My dog just licked me because <laughs> he was like, yeah. Um, no, I was, I, I think in later Sandman, I, I was very aware that there was a lot of investigation of storytelling itself. But mm-hmm. I didn't realize until I reread 24 hours how much the theme of secrets and storytelling runs mm-hmm. through. And, you know, we see how, uh, let's see, to begin with, Betty Monroe is a manipulative writer in the same way yeah. that John Dee is a manipulative storyteller because she takes Judy and Donna. She knows from, you know, we don't mm-hmm. meet Donna in this, but, you know, Betty knows them. And so in her stories, because she's not comfortable with their sexuality, she mm-hmm. writes them as having happy heterosexual relationships she is writing over she is she is doing the kind of uh, you know when when I was studying writing people would say oh you're manipulating the reader and what that meant is Mm -hmm. you know you could see you could see the strings and the cogs as 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 people Mm -hmm. are moved into position for what the writer wants to have happen as Mm -hmm. opposed to something that feels authentic um and So I thought that was really interesting, the ways in which you can see that, you know, John D is a writer, he is pacing Mm -hmm. things, he is, he is manipulating them, but not completely, he is having people do things that are motivated by their darkest desires, their darkest selves. He's not giving them those dark desires. However, you get the feeling that that's in there. 
That's what makes it so freaking awful is that he he makes them complicit so that what's happening to them is almost like their fault. And it's just, I mean, it's not. They're victims, but at the same time, it was there. Like he says, they are raw material. Like he is using them as raw material. And one of the things that Betty says is that like the key to storytelling is knowing when to stop. Because if you keep telling a story, eventually they all end in death. And I was like, well, damn, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, right? But she does manipulate all of these lies. And she tells the stories in ways that are just untrue. You know, she erases who Judy and Donna are, you know, and and sets them up with nice young men, you know, and then has this horrible, I mean, my God, the horrifying moment with Marsh, where he confesses about her son, saw your son in the prison, you could have him for a pack of cigarettes. And I did, you know, oh, my God. Oh, just when you think, it can't get any worse. It just gets worse. Like it's so incredibly, incredibly dark. And all of those people brought all of that into the diner with them, you know? Um, yeah. And, it's just, it's, it's so horrifying. And I mean, it, good, but horrifying. It, it is. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and I think one of the horrifying things inside of that is that you don't get mm-hmm. the feeling that this is a particularly awful batch of people this is you you know the the way it's presented is it's a random batch of people and another random batch would have another random would have other darkness but just as much dark secrets i want to say as an aside um that the writers who uh betty betty monroe is having this fantasy of you know her little notes will go in a brown paper Mm -hmm. bag to either dear abby earl wilson or Jackie Collins. And I just wrote a note. I was thinking like, I wonder if everyone knows who these, so Dear Abby was an advice Mm -hmm. columnist. Um, There were different people who wrote as Dear Abby. My mom Mm -hmm. was briefly Dear Abby for Seventeen (gasps) Magazine in the 1950s. Oh my God. How cool is that? So, uh, so that that's Dear Abby's the advice columnist. Mm -hmm. Earl Wilson, I had to look up Mm -hmm. and he was a gossip columnist back in the day. And the quote I found for him was gossip is when you hear something you like about someone you don't. Oh, wow. Well, that cuts right to it, doesn't it? <laughs> and and the last one for anyone who did, I, I, in our day, of course, everyone who Jackie Collins was, she was the glitzy mm-hmm. sex Hollywood scandalous mm-hmm. writer. And mm-hmm. um, I think that the quote I found about her is no one writes mm-hmm. sex in the back of a Bentley better. <laughs> Yeah, interesting. Interesting that those are all because I mean, Jackie Collins, I think, too, based a lot of her stuff on real people, right? Like, on you know, like the, the thinly like the serial numbers shaved off, but it's this famous person and that famous person and this rich person. Um, and that's interesting, because they're all talking about real people. But from this, I mean, Dear Abby wasn't actually Dear Abby, there's a secret, you know, there's something that is false mixed in with all of this reality. Um, and it's funny that those are the references that are pulled in for Betty, who also takes reality around her and then just remodels molds it into whatever shape she wants it to have, you know, and I give them all happy endings. I give them all happiness. I make sure I write stories where everybody is happy, you know, which by the way, you got to have something that somebody wants so that something is somebody is missing in order to make a story happen. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's so interesting. And the way that D 
lets them write their own stories, but in the darkest way possible, you know, forces them or pushes them to write their own stories through using that darkness as that raw material. So we have this just incredibly disturbing um, you know, series of events, hour by hour, the different ways in which he is is using them to torment themselves. Until we get to 24 hours, they're all dead. He's sitting there by himself. Dream shows up and you're like, oh my God, thank God, right? <laughs> Close out the issue. Mm -hmm. I think that when we see Sandman's beautiful ethereal face, mm -hmm. he's the first beautiful thing that we've had to look at everyone's faces mm -hmm. have been very twisted and tormented. Um, this is also, I, I believe this is the first issue penciled by Mike Dringenberg. Um, uh -huh. And so you, I think that what you really are seeing here is a, a slightly different version of dream. Mm -hmm. So when Sam mm -hmm. Keith penciled him, he was you know, we, we got some of the elements of wonderful comedy when Sandman's being held, you know, up by Gregory mm -hmm. the Gargoyle. Yeah. We get more of him as lost and pathetic and also mm -hmm. a little, you know, strange. Mm -hmm. Dringenberg is bringing here a real rock star male beauty and, mm -hmm. and adding that layer to his, to his mystique. Yeah. Well, he's the big hero. So we have, you know, he shows up and then we know that things are about to be righted again as much as they can be. Um, and then we open Sound and Fury instead of picking up this moment right where we were, this like throwing the door open, it's dream, ah, you know. We open Sound and Fury with a command to listen, hear the weeping, hear the sobbing. Um, and Dream tells Dee to listen, not to hear, but to understand. And he says, listen a lot. And Dee does not he does not. There's a lot. I, I think Neil has talked about himself as being a, a writer with, um, you know, th that comics are very auditory for him, that he hears mm -hmm. them. Yes. And mm -hmm. I, I can definitely feel that. But there's also a lot of visual play going on. We get, mm -hmm. especially in Sound and Fury, we get backgrounds disappearing. And it's not just because, you know, the artist didn't want to draw them. It was because mm -hmm. everything right. drops mm -hmm. out and we are playing with frames of reference. I feel mm -hmm. that this is, you get the shifting frames and, and here's a place where the dreaming in a way is becoming its own character. We get to mm -hmm. see more of how yeah. it operates and how it is, you know, both apart from dream and yet a part of him. Yeah. No, it's so, God, it's so fascinating the way it all works. Um, one of the things, though, that that instantly comes to mind when we talk about Sound and Fury is this idea of empathy. You know, um, I talked about this a little bit at the top of the show, how we have this incredible empathy from Dream dealing with D after D had been so cruel and so harmful. And in the end, what he did was accidentally good for Dream, you know, um, and Dream just says, thank you. You know, he, D crushes the ruby, calls him names says all this like, you know, shouting mean things at him, you know, chasing him through the dreaming, all of this stuff. And then Dream has to consider what the punishment should be. And then as I'm, I'm watching this, you know, we're thinking about vengeance and you're thinking about justice, like what should be done with D, you know? Um, and what, what Dream thinks, I think he goes for is he just chooses the best outcome. 
It's not about vengeance and it's not about justice. It's just about what is the best outcome here, you know? Um, and then Dream makes his decision and walks this wretched little man who just murdered all these people, walks him through a dream field of flowers and sunshine, and then returns him home. And I mean, yeah, it's Arkham Asylum. You know, it ain't great, but he's safe there. He can be cared for and he won't hurt anyone again. He's just bringing him back to a place where everyone else can be safe from him. And, you know, having gone through this whole run, you know, from Constantine and Rachel and then how kind he was. And then he gave Constantine relief from his bad dreams. And at the end of, of most of these interactions, he gives people what they need, that he they can dream of the thing that they need. Um, so he's using his, his power for empathy, which was one of the things that you brought up when we talked about Rachel, was that is it, is it really that he's that into empathy or that this is a power thing, that he knows he has the power to do it? Um, and then I was thinking, well, is it about power or is he now becoming empathetic because of his experience being a prisoner? Has that mm. trauma changed him? Is Dream a better entity now than he was before he was captured? And that brings me back to the run-in with, with Nada in Hell, right? Where was that compassion with regard to Nada? She is kept captive the way that he was, except for a lot longer and in Hell, right? But when he passes by her, he does not release her. He has not forgiven her. I don't know what she's done. I don't want you to tell me. I am very excited to find out. I can't wait until we get there. Um, but I find that his he is really kind of playing with this compassion and this empathy. And as somebody who hasn't read the whole run, you know, so I don't know what to expect and I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's in the background here. Um, I'm finding his, he constantly returns to that. At the end of everything, he ends it with kindness and with empathy. And I find that just so fascinating coming from this character whose suffering is what opened this whole story. Oh gosh, these are wonderful issues, topics that you're bringing up. And I, mm -hmm. I think definitely Sandman has been changed by his time as a prisoner and we will see him reflect on that later. Mm -hmm. But I am, you know, my mom was a therapist and she used mm -hmm. to talk to me a little about the difference between how she or how therapeutically the difference between empathy and compassion. Yeah. And so I would suggest that maybe what we see from Sandman towards Rachel, um, the drug addict who becomes addicted to dream sand, yes. and mm -hmm. what we see toward John D, who is a, a, a human, a mortal who's been corrupted by the dreamstone. Yeah. He, like Rachel, he is not equipped emotionally or mentally, mm -hmm. you know, to, to deal with this. And so he's like a person with dementia, you know, he's not completely responsible for his actions. Right. Mm -hmm. I, would call that compassion, which is mm -hmm. a feeling for someone, you know, so mm -hmm. he's in a more distant way saying, you know, you who are so far beneath me, you know, the way yeah. we might feel compassion for, I don't know, a, a, a squirrel that we'd run into with our car, mm -hmm. you know, like, let me see if I can help this squirrel. 
Whereas Mm -hmm. empathy is the feeling with of really that close identification. And I don't think at this point, Sandman feels it for anybody. I think that what happened with Nada was personal. And Mm -hmm. so it feels truly authentic to me that you would be kinder to people from whom you have emotional distance and crueler Mm -hmm. to people, you know, (laughs) you know, who have touched you more deeply. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I I know I'm quoting my mom a lot here because my mom is, you know, she's, she's your mom was dear Abby. I just found this out. That's amazing. (laughs) She was one of the dear Abby's again for 17 magazine and not so, Mm -hmm. but, um, no, she uh, she always said you can't be betrayed by anyone who isn't an intimate. It's just yeah. you you have to let someone get close enough for it to mm-hmm. be a betrayal. And mm-hmm. so I I think we're we're still Sandman is is going to be changed, but we're still seeing him. His the Hebrew word for charity is justice. And it's the idea that doing what's Ooh. just is, uh-huh. um, is, is sort of what you owe to people less fortunate than yourself. And I feel mm-hmm. like there's something of that built into Sandman. So he is, he is someone who will do right, but he mm-hmm. is not an emotional creature at this point. But he is when it comes to Nada though, because that's, yes. Yes. He has not forgiven Like her. so many yeah. men we've known, he's in touch with his emotions <laughs> when they're negative. <laughs> when they're negative. There you go. Oh, I find that so interesting. And yeah, now that you bring it up, I think that there is, that is a significant uh, distinction to be made, you know, between compassion and empathy. I think in terms of empathy, because I feel, I do will literally feel somebody, if I see somebody get hurt, I will feel it on my body. Like, you know, not to the extent that they do, but like it, I might, that part of my body will twinge. Like I feel people's emotions. I feel people's stuff. It's freaking exhausting. I got to tell you. Um, so wait, are you so like, the idea- are, are you like that woman in, in the original Star Trek, who's an empath and as people are upset, right. like her face all scars up and then she heals it on herself like that. Oh, I'm not quite like that because <laughs> nothing that I suffer does anything for the people that I'm feeling for. So it, it benefits nobody and it just harms me. Right. And- you know, it's one of those things <laughs> like being an empath freaking sucks. Um, but there is something about that, that like, I, I feel like nobody cries alone in my presence, you know, like Dolly Parton and Steel Magnolias. Nobody cries alone in my presence. Um, it, I will feel other people's pain. I will feel other people's stress, other people, like everything. So for me, like I'm an extrovert, but I get exhausted being around people and after a while because I just feel everything. So when I see this, I think in terms of empath, but I think you're absolutely right. I think it is compassion. Um, And that makes it so much more, it's so interesting. And he's such a complicated character. And you do have to think about here he is dealing with humans. And it's like us dealing with little kids, you know, like what do you know, like they're they're a kid. What are you going to do? You know, and you just take care of them and uh, and try to make sure that they harm as few people as possible. Oh, oh, this is just a a total aside. But, you know, here you've got Dream, who's this ancient being not terribly in touch with his emotions. One of my (laughs) great pleasures is at no point does he fall in love with a teenager. I, I've uh-huh. always been so disturbed by that trope of I am an ancient being who has studied, you know, countless languages mm-hmm. and philosophies. <laughs> Diogenes and I used to hang out, but now you, you mopey 16 year old, you're my everything. <laughs> <laughs> 
We've had that argument about Buffy and Angel quite a bit, but that happens over on Still Pretty, the the Buffy podcast. We'll talk about that there. Uh, but yes, I absolutely love that. And that's I'm glad to know. I don't mind spoilers at all, generally, but I love having that spoiler because yes, and you can't spoil what doesn't happen. He doesn't fall in love with a uh, with a mopey teenager. So that's good. Um one of the things yeah. oh i'm sorry go ahead sorry oh i i um sorry i was just thinking that there are other speaking of teenagers yeah um so in addition this may not be the right place to point it out but so judy mm-hmm. gets on the phone with someone yeah. named rose right mm-hmm. and all the little hairs on the back of your neck should be standing up because <gasps> yes Is there's something there oh yes and something coming I don't know if I should say it or not. You know what? I'll just be all like, dun, dun, dun. Um, yeah, so, you can say there's something coming as long as you don't say what it is, then, you know, and fair enough. I, I think that one of the people put down soap opera as mm-hmm. as if it's not. A, I, I, I saw someone said, I hate it when people say soap opera because and I think there there was mm-hmm. a cheesy aspect to soap opera. But I loved the intense cat's cradle interconnectedness of soap oh, opera yeah. plots. Mm-hmm. And so we've got that here. I mean, very often if someone oh. drops a name or there's mm-hmm. it, it's going to be picked up. There's we but I think before we started recording, we were talking about knitting. Mm-hmm. And this is you know, there are no drop stitches in the sandman. Wow, I love it. That's very exciting. That'll be really fun because then later when we come back and I'll be like, oh, that's Rose. I know Rose. I know Rose. I'll yeah, remember yeah. that. So yeah, very yeah. cool. Very cool. Um, one of the other things I, that I thought was kind of interesting in this is that we have like, uh, culturally, we talk a lot about intent versus impact. Like, Someone who doesn't mean harm, but did harm anyway, is still responsible for that harm. That's how it goes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but here, we've kind of flipped that switch a little bit. We have the total intent to do harm from D in destroying the ruby, but the impact for Dream is actually a net positive. <laughs> so when someone intends to be cruel, but accidentally does good, if the impact is what matters, he gets brought back to Arkham rather than suffer because what he did, regardless of his intent, it feels a little off. And I've never thought about intent and impact with that, that switch flipped. Um, But I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, So yeah, I don't know. I I, I kind of, I'm, I'm playing with this idea that like, does intent truly not matter or does the fact that his intent was to murder and to maim and he's already engaged in all of this cruelty uh does that matter i i think that what we are circling around here a little is Mm -hmm. also the question of derangement mental illness because Mm -hmm. when you have an intent to harm but when you are not um, not completely in touch with reality w- mm-hmm. or unable to control yourself. Um, mm-hmm. How does that figure in? So we are meant to understand from what Sandman says that mm-hmm. D has been corrupted by the Dreamstone, much like Gollum has been mm-hmm. corrupted by his precious and Giuliani 
been corrupted by whatever the <laughs> hell corruption. Giuliani them. is absolutely a ring wraith. Giuliani <laughs> is the reason why Lord of the Rings, uh, you know, resonates with us the way that it does is because that power structure is exactly what actually happens to people. So he's yeah. even melting the way John D yeah. appears to be melting. I yeah. don't understand. I used to think that was just you know, ridiculous over the top. Oh my no, God. That happens. You know, like, oh, you're evil. So you're so evil. It's going to make you look more evil. I, I yeah. don't understand, but yeah. Okay. Anyway, there you so, go. Mm -hmm. So if, if D has been corrupted because mm -hmm. the, the power that he's wielding is too much for his system, mm -hmm. I think the idea is that underneath that he he is not entirely responsible because he got his hands on a tool that that corrupted him. I I do think that it it is a strange it, it is a slippery slope, isn't it? Because at mm -hmm. what point do we say that someone is responsible for their actions if we consider that anyone who would do something truly awful is has a mental or, illness yeah. to some degree sure so how do we and and maybe the other question there is you know mm -hmm. are we looking for retribution or are we looking for healing well here's the thing is that when you're looking for retribution the question of are they responsible becomes relevant when you're looking for healing and the best outcome it becomes irrelevant mm -hmm. and i think that that's an interesting thing to think about a little bit you know, um, a punishment and vengeance and retribution and all of that. What does that serve? And, you know, and if I don't know, like, I think it's it's definitely a really good question that we need to we need to start asking, you know, those themes are going to get explored more directly later in the series. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a first year uh Netflix thing, but it will, yeah, probably it will, not. it will come around, um, th mm -hmm. these questions of responsibility and vengeance. Mm. Yeah, no, I love those questions. Those are always really fun questions. Cause the thing is that once you start picking it apart, you know, once you start really digging into it, you're like, oh yeah, there's some really important questions that we need to start asking ourselves here about what is it? Are we looking for the best outcome? you know, and what is the best outcome? Once something's done, you know, it's done. It's done and there's nothing you can do to undo it. So what do you do now? And it's, it's interesting. I, as I was um, thinking about John D in his dream sequence, he appears as Caesar. And yeah. I randomly was watching a Netflix show about, um, it was one of those, you know, documentary mm -hmm. Roman Empire, <laughs> but it's like it's all, you, you know, a crime yes. story. And mm -hmm. I discovered a couple of things that I hadn't known. So I guess um, they said that Caesar was not superstitious. So as mm -hmm. per the Shakespeare play, even though Calpurnia, his wife, had uh, all these visions, this, these nightmares about him being killed, he completely disregarded those. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting that in his dream, John D is Caesar. The other thing about Caesar is that he wanted the kind of worship and recognition that Romans during the Republic had previously reserved for the gods. Uh -huh. And last but not least, I didn't realize this, but Brutus, who was um, the most 
I, I think, I don't know if he was the last person who stabbed Caesar, um, mm-hmm. but it was the betrayal that gave rise to that Shakespearean line, yeah. et tu, I, I think it's et tu mm-hmm. brute or something. I, I think, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and Brutus was the son of Caesar's favorite mistress, the one he loved, his love, which I hadn't realized. And I was Mm -hmm. thinking about how knowing that made, I, I, I don't doubt that Neil knew more about Caesar. I feel like I just think, you know, British, British Mm -hmm. bookish boys just sat around reading. I don't know, you know, um, I, I, I'm reaching for the name. I, I just, this is an aside, but I remember that I was mm-hmm. doing, um, a book about destiny, um, mm-hmm. the, uh, a chronicle of deaths foretold using destiny. And, and I asked Neil something, I, I was, I think it was during, I, I was doing a little historical research and he said, mm-hmm. and now I can't remember the name. I'm, this is going to come back to me. I'm going to be so embarrassed. Um, oh. <laughs> but there was a chronicler of, um, uh, this emperor who was himself mm-hmm. nuts. He was c- convinced that the empire emperor had been taken over by a, um, a demon. And so there was oh, all wow. this amazing original source material. His name started with a P. Was it Petronius? Petroclus? Anyway, when I was doing research uh, mm-hmm. to do uh, Destiny, a Chronicle of Deaths Foretold, which was a, a mini series using one of the endless Destiny, the only Destiny mm-hmm. that was uh, owned by DC because he was a pre-existing mm-hmm. character, Neil just set me onto all these amazing original sources that have been translated mm-hmm. into English. So I guess you know either Neil or all British bookish boys just go around casually reading (laughs) classical (laughs) Roman sources. Well, and thank goodness, because that definitely feeds into, you know, into what he does here, which is really, really great. Um, So a couple of random notes. So I love this moment when Scarecrow quotes Faust. uh, It is a comfort in wretchedness to have companions in woe, which, of course, is a very fancy way of saying misery loves company. But there's something really kind of nice about that when he welcomes Dee back into Arkham Asylum. Um, And I absolutely love this little panel in the middle of one of the pages with Cain, Abel, Gregory and Goldie huddling under the bed. The quakes and lights send the keepers of the story scurrying for cover. Their monsters hide with them under the bed. I love that. That one tiny little thing in the midst of everything going insane with the stone and everything. It's just so great. Yes, absolutely. I noticed that one too. I, 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 we talked about this before, but I love the fact that when Betty, Kate and Judy become um, Mm -hmm. maiden mother and crone, all their prophecies are accurate, including you will Mm -hmm. crush out the dream Lord's life in your hands, which Mm -hmm. D misinterprets because of course the life that he crushes out is the Ruby. Yeah. Yeah. I know, which is, and actually end up, of course, returning that. Again, intent and impact, completely different things. Um, all right, so now here we are to the Lucien's Library part of the uh, of the podcast where we talk about Easter eggs and discussions that may include some spoilers, so prepare yourselves. If it's not something that you want to be possibly maybe spoiled on a detail or two, then go ahead and skip ahead a couple of minutes. Um, but yeah, you had some stuff here in Lucien's Library that we wanted to talk about? Well, one of the things that occurred to me that we're still in Art Young's tenure as assistant editor. So I have not Mm -hmm. started working on the Sandman yet. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought that one of the things that is interesting, since we're talking about this moment in time, and this will be different mm-hmm. in the Netflix series, this was the mid 80s. And mm-hmm. when I started working at DC, um, no, this is a this is a later 80s. Sorry. This this was written a couple of years earlier. So by the time I worked mm-hmm. there, I think it was 8990. But yeah. mm-hmm. the there was a glamour to the idea of being in an office. If you think about movies mm-hmm. like Working Girl and mm-hmm. just the idea that you would be able to put on your nice clothes and go mm-hmm. into an office and do work with others. There, there was a way in which that was considered a happy ending. Although I've right. heard that in Working Girl, it was meant to be a depressing ending. Like, oh, <laughs> like, like, like a chorus line is really about, hey, here's your big thing. You're a chorus dancer. Um, and, but I think nevertheless that we, there was this romance about success of a certain kind mm-hmm. of working in an office in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking that so much has changed. So I look at the diner and I'm thinking, you know, mm-hmm. nobody has a cell phone. So the way that the world comes in at them is mm-hmm. through the TV and the TV yeah. alone. There, mm-hmm. there, there is nothing linking them to the outside world besides that. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, and I, I think that it, is interesting to me how much this still lasts and still feels very current, but yeah. I was thinking how there was an eighties moment of horror too, that I, I love, mm-hmm. I, I was talking to you about Grady Hendrix who wrote yeah. paperbacks from hell, which is this mm-hmm. wonderful book about the horror books of the 1970s and the 1980s. It was mm-hmm. also a much more adult horror. You, you know, this mm-hmm. was not horror about teenagers, by and large, it wasn't horror um, that was, you know, leavened with humor for children. This was mm-hmm. adult concerns. And I feel like in all those ways, this does feel of mm-hmm. the 80s. And yeah, yeah and the, the last thing that occurred to me as I was looking at that is that when I started work at DC, you know, it was still, let's see, you know, there was a selectric typewriter. And a telephone. Oh my gosh, I remember those. Right with the <laughs> buttons that lit up. I yeah. was amazed how quickly we could fax a script to an oh artist. Once it had gotten approved, we could fax them the script so they could get it and get to work right away. And, oh, yeah. Um, and it was a different, it, it was just a, a different kind mm-hmm. of atmosphere in terms yeah. of, of the work. I think it was also not a time when people got signed up into those big New York buildings. So people were yeah. just wandering around, you know, people, if a freelancer, if they could get up and wander in and come into your office and say, Hey, how's wow. it going? So all of that feels now mm-hmm. very much like an artifact of another age. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that that's one of the things I keep thinking about as we're reading this is that, you know, my understanding is they're updating the Netflix show to exist in the current time period as opposed to, you know, what we had back then. So I'm wondering how they're going to do, you know, how they're going to make that into the 24 hours segment. Um, That's going to be so interesting. The more we read of this, the more excited I get about that Netflix show. I think it's just going to be amazing. Um, All right. So Elisa, what is your favorite page um, in this, in this run of issues that we're reading? Oh gosh. Well, 
I, I have glanced and I, you know, <laughs> a bit, I, I, if since since I won't overlap with you, but we are so drawn to the same. <laughs> we things. always pick the same ones we, every week. It's yeah. ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But there is a moment where there's a two page spread where Sandman takes D out of the dreaming, and he's yeah. in this beautiful sunshiny paradise, mm-hmm. and he mm-hmm. opens the door into Arkham Asylum. But it is not a bad place. And then the scarecrow comes out, and suddenly mm-hmm. you get one image that they're in silhouette and you can see it's the scarecrow and John Uh D in the middle and Mm -hmm. dream on the other side. And I just instantly thought, Oh, it's the wizard of Oz. And (laughs) I'm pretty sure that John D is Dorothy. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I, I would guess that, um, that Sandman is the Tin Man rather than the Cowardly <laughs> Lion. Um, Interesting, yes. Mm-hmm. So that's that's where I place him. I place him as the Tin Man. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, my favorite page in this is the one. It's a full page, one panel. Um, it's page two hundred in the Kindle version. I'm not sure what it is in the the big omnibus, but um, where Dream is holding D in his right hand, right after D's big delusions of grandeur, and here I am, the king, and I have killed the Dream Lord, and I run the dreaming, and all of this. And he's he's actually just in Dream's hand. He's so tiny. And Dream just says, thank you, John D. I never would, like, in the next page we get, I never would have thought of that. You crushed the Dreamstone. It never would have occurred to me to do that. But you released it back into me. But just that one page where he's staring at him in his hand and he has all the power and he could just crush him, you know? Um, but he doesn't. And he says, thank you, John D. And there's something about that that is just, it's such a wonderful, after all of this horrible and and D with his ranting and I'm going to kill you, you terrible. And he just wants to murder, you know, uh, Dream. And even after all of that, he just says, thank you. And there's something about that that is, it's, it's a wonderful twist, all of this darkness. And then we get this twist into just, I mean, for somebody who isn't human, a moment of real humanity. And I just love that. It's it's a wonderful image. And again, mm-hmm. we've got this Sandman is a little different than the incarnation mm-hmm. that was penciled by Sam Keith and yeah. inked by Dringenberg. I think that, I mean, that had so much charm and so much appeal, but this is, there is a softness mm-hmm. in in his face now um, that that's definitely appealing. I also... I love that there, there's something a little punk about his look too. There is mm-hmm. that punk yeah. rocker look, that very slender, very young, um, that mm-hmm. is hair that has been, I, I know that in his situation, it's magic, but that is hair that's had a lot of hairspray in it. <laughs> and, you know, and I, I wonder what they're going to do. I guess it's been long enough. Maybe, maybe it'll all come back. I was just Mm -hmm. whitewater rafting and the young (laughs) 19 year old guy who was there Mm -hmm. had a mullet. And I said, (gasps) Oh my God, you've got a mullet. It looked wonderful. Mm -hmm. And he said, Oh, it's not Mm -hmm. a mullet. It's just kind of long on the top and it's long in the back, but I just, (laughs) I just cut the sides. And I Uh. said, Oh, that's a mullet, baby. Oh, young man. Young man. You sweet summer child. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, I I just think that maybe now everyone's going to start to do that sort of sprayed punk thing again. Yeah. But I, mm-hmm. 
I loved the whole decadent glamour of it. And anyway, I I digress into fashion. Um, (laughs) You can digress into whatever you want, baby. (laughs) No, I I just really, I love that as well. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very, very cool. It's very, very fun. fun. It's a visual pun, which is another Mm -hmm. way that, you know, I think that there may be some precedents for it. I I think at the end of even Puss in Boots, there's Mm -hmm. that little play on size where, you know, the, Mm -hmm. well, that's a different one. That's that, that's actually from the game of magicians too. Like, oh, you can become a big thing because you're a big person, but I bet you can't turn yourself into a mouse. Mm But, um, <laughs> but this, but this playing back and forth with size mm-hmm. and who is the world. I, I, I do love the visual puns. It is. It's very, very cool. Um, all right. So what's your favorite part? Oh gosh. You know, I, I have a lot of different favorite parts, but I think mm-hmm. there's something about the, the three women becoming truly an Oracle at, mm-hmm. at that moment that I keep coming back to as being particularly important and magical mm-hmm. because yeah. it is saying that these are aspects that will speak through more than one flesh, that they mm-hmm. can occur in more than one configuration. And that mm-hmm. will have yeah. huge implications, not just for the three witches and the Norns and mm-hmm. the, all of that, but for Sandman himself, but not until the very, very, very end of the series. So, oh my goodness. Wow. We're going to have to wait a while to see that uh, come to fruition then. All right. All right. All right. Hint taken. Um, I think for me, my favorite part is, uh, you know, when Dream gives a peaceful night's sleep to both D and Scarecrow, Um, even the villains, you know, get that compassion. They get that break um, in Dream's world. And I think there's just something really powerful in that you know and I just I liked it it was kind of sweet and lucidity and sanity mm-hmm. comes with the sleep it's yeah it's mm-hmm. that is uh as any of us who have struggled with sleep know um yes the more sleep we get the better we all are the, better, the less likely we are to go on a wild rampage in a diner or just start <laughs> looking like a shriveled homunculus exactly. in a trench coat <laughs> If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag EndlessPodcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Endless is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jonathan, Kevin, Kristen, Michael, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, Stephania, and Stephanie. And this week's special message for our power producers. I will be a wise and tolerant monarch, dispensing justice fairly and only setting nightmares to rip out the minds of the evil and the wicked. Or just anybody I don't like. To find out how you too can rip out the minds of that. No, sorry. (laughs) To find out how you too can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support? Write a great review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends about the show or scurry for cover your monsters hiding with you under the bed. (laughs) This episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack? 
It is a comfort and wretchedness to have companions in woe. We'll be back next time with Volume 1, Preludes and Nocturnes, Issue 8, The Sound of Her Wings. Until then, I always thought when I became king, I thought there would be applause. I thought somebody would say something.